Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm privileged to welcome a very, very accomplished professional and an entrepreneur from Bern, Switzerland, Mr. Philip Sieberg-Gasser. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ashutosh. Thank you. Uh, Philip is, has co-built the pioneering impact investment firm Obviam as a partner. He is the founder and CEO of Beso. So Philip, before we talk about uh, Obviam and Beso, tell me a little bit about your own journey. Absolutely. Thanks so much. So I guess my journey has always been driven by the conviction that business has a key role to play in reducing global inequalities and mm-hmm. fighting the climate crisis. So during my studies, I was really drawn to this intersection of international cooperation, development, mm-hmm. finance, and the fascination with development investments really followed me throughout. So in my early career, it was all about getting into this space. And eventually I became part of the team that built the Swiss Development Finance Institution. Mm-hmm. And a bit later, we spun off the impact investment manager that then became a private entity called Obviam. Mm-hmm. As a group of um, six partners, we we built that. And over more than a decade, my role shifted quite significantly. So I started making quite a lot of investments across Asia, later managed the impact investment portfolio in Asia. I looked after our main investors, built the reporting and corporate governance functions, and eventually I refocused on more of a corporate role, Mm. building the organization, transforming to a regulated asset managers. Mm. And, you know, having been with one of the pioneers in this space, it's really satisfying to see how it's slowly becoming a mainstream topic. But after the company was sold, I felt a desire to follow my entrepreneurial spirit. Mm. So I decided to launch this new venture a couple of mm. months ago. Fascinating. Fascinating. So let's first talk about Obvium, uh, which is an impact investment company. Uh, can you share a defining moment that led you towards impact investing? Yes, indeed. I, I had this one light bulb moment, actually, still within my studies where, you know, having been born in Switzerland, I was always aware of the the privilege that this entails. And um, during my studies, I sought ways of contributing through youth politics, especially in international organizations. So I got quite a bit of developing country exposure and I got the sense of the the huge potential despite the structural challenges and the mm-hmm. eagerness to develop. And um, also, I had a student job working for a Swiss member of parliament and Mm -hmm. helped her prepare for her foreign policy and development committee work. And as part of that, I came across this very early stage idea of creating Mm -hmm. a development finance institution in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. I literally had this light bulb moment of saying, this is what I want to do with my life when I grow up. It's it's followed me throughout. Fascinating. Thank you. And how does one find the right balance between financial returns and societal impact? Um, I think, you know, it goes 
back to the core of some of the definitional uncertainties that we see in, in impact investing, mm-hmm. because within impact investing, you have people who who would call themselves finance first and other people who would call themselves impact first, which always goes to the question of, you know, how much of a trade off do you always do you actually have? So mm-hmm. I can't give you the one right answer because there are many answers to the question, but I can give you my personal philosophy behind it, right. which is that there is no one kind of top-down, one-size-fits-all strategy. Mm. Um, I think the, the key challenge is to combine a, a clarity of purpose and the focused expertise in an impact investor with sufficient strategy in the inve- sufficient flexibility in the investment strategy. And mm. that flexibility is really needed to find bottom-up solutions where the people implementing are driven by their own purpose and, and not yours as an investor, yeah. which, which really motivates them to build and to scale. And with that, with luck, you can create a positive correlation between financial return and impact. Mm, fascinating. And, uh, you know, you were, as you mentioned a few minutes back, you know, you identified this area soon after you started working almost as an intern with this uh member of parliament, how have you seen impact investing evolve over the years? Because people are talking impact investing now, and you seem to have been doing it for a long time. Yeah, exactly. You know, when we started out um, in the mid-2000s with that team, the, the term impact investing wasn't really used yet. I mean, we were talking about development investments, mm. um, by the late 2000s, it was really uh, establishing itself as a market niche. And, um, you know, we talked all about adding a third dimension where previously when we thought about investments, it was about mm. risk and return. And now it was also about the impact that you were having on society and, and the environment. Um, but in, in doing so, what happened is actually a grouping together of all different kinds of, uh, I would say, well-intentioned investors. Mm. So that created visibility and momentum and also quite a bit of uh, success. I would say, you know, what was interesting for us, we saw first uh, collaboration with the Swiss banks where their high net worth individuals um, initially had been doing a lot of philanthropy work and were also looking to get additional exposure to value-based activities in their investment portfolio. And, Mm. And a bit later, we saw the foundations coming in, which were looking to align their balance sheets with mm. their value. Where, mm. you know, for instance, we had a environmental conservation NGOs where their balance sheet was in oil and gas, and you know they were looking for redressing those uh, those imbalances that they mm. were seeing. And slowly, um, also, you saw more and more mainstream institutional investors coming right. in, such as pension Very funds, insurances. Yeah, Very interesting, and you know. You say that you are a you are purpose driven. So was there a deeper sense of personal purpose behind your motivation? You know, in all honesty, I was so deeply on a mission um, that I only started reflecting on this when Obvium was sold. And mm. um also as I saw the the gradual mainstreaming and, and consolidation of the sector, um, I took a great sense of satisfaction with what we had achieved among one of the, the the few pioneers in this space but i no longer felt connected to to the core of the purpose because mm-hmm. what what i realized for myself was that it was all about pioneering new solutions you know the entrepreneurial aspect deeply motivated me but also in a field where 
you know, you, you build a firm that pioneers win-win-win solutions where you create a win for, I would say, commercial operations at scale, but at the same time in doing so, help create an impact for society and the environment. Mm. And obviously also in doing a sustainable business model along the way. Mm. Well said. So Philip, now let's talk about BESO, which is an AI-powered trade compliance automation organization. Transitioning from Obvium to founding BESO um, seems like a substantial shift. Tell me about the core opportunity or problem that you identified, uh, which led to you starting BESO. Absolutely, yes. As I mean, as an investor in, in developing countries, what I often saw was suppliers in global value chains struggling with understanding how to access markets and mm. what rules apply to them. And if you think back a little bit, you know, trade regulation has always been incredibly complex, but the last few years have been pretty crazy. You've seen trade wars in the mid-2010s leading to a complete blockade of the WTO um, dispute resolution mechanism, COVID wreaking havoc in global supply chains, new sustainability regulations, geopolitics essentially leading to a weaponization of trade. So mm. firms that operate international value chains have had to shift quite significantly from a, I would say, incremental learning approach to suddenly having to recontrol, recheck everything. And they're really struggling to find mm. the skilled talent that they need and the data. So the, the core idea that we had was to use AI to fundamentally just build a digital twin of the global stock of trade regulation and keep mm -hmm. that updated so that we can enable real-time compliance screening of global value chains. Mm, very interesting. And uh, where does purpose fit into this story? And what impact is BESO making? So I think it's a, you know, it's a, at least an attempt to create another win-win-win story because mm -hmm. obviously for the reasons I just mentioned, commercial trade operations at scale are facing challenges. Um, but there is also um, key levers in terms of inclusiveness and sustainability. If you think about the, the systems of preferential trade, uh, a lot of the preferential tariff regimes, actually what they aim to do is helping attract additional value add into developing countries. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why they're not used is the sheer complexity of these schemes. Mm -hmm. So we're creating easy pathways for companies to apply them and avail themselves of, of the preferences. Mm -hmm. There is also a second inclusiveness layers, which is linked to, you know, what we're doing is transforming trade compliance from fixed cost to a variable cost. And with that also enabling higher supplier diversity. Mm -hmm. Then there is a, a sustainability lever, which is not to be underestimated. Um, where a lot of the new sustainability regulation is being pushed down into value chains and companies struggle with what at this stage are pretty much bureaucratic exercises. And mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is to provide tools to simplify implementation and reconcile with their uh, sustainability strategy. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, for me, it's about democratizing access to trade and to trade regulation to enable everyone to easily understand and apply the trade rules and participate in global trade. Great response. Thank you. My next question is that how do you leverage digitization and AI to streamline the cross-border trade process 
And what differentiates this from other solutions in the market? Yeah, indeed. You know, what you see is with trade law, it's it's harmonized internationally in theory because it's a global field, but every new trade agreement and every new regulation introduces new definitions, new processes, new requirements. And I mean, the key challenge that we're trying to solve is somehow getting back to this degree of harmonization that enables a consistent application. And right now, this is this is very costly and often manual. So what Beso has figured out is how to do this with generative AI. I mean, we go from unstructured regulatory text to queryable databases that enable then this real-time screening. Mm-hmm. And we invested quite a lot of time into technical studies over the last month, um, making sure that we get to the right level of accuracy and scalability mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. system. You know, uh, can you uh, explain this to me with an example for my viewers and listeners? Yes, indeed. Um, if, if you think about LLMs, you know, every time you ask ChatGPT a question, you get a slightly mm-hmm. different answer. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure everyone's played around with ChatGPT a bit. Absolutely. Um, so one of the issues is that they're not deterministic by nature. And what we're trying to do is for a legal use case here to make sure that we have very high prediction in terms mm-hmm. of, um, you know, what the models find out. So we invested a lot of time into testing all the the available models and new ones are coming out every other week and Mm. doing the fine tuning and the adjustments that are necessary and then really quality controlling each of the data points coming out for a long time to make sure that we've got it under control how this works. So what we're doing is um, we've built uh, partnerships with uh, a few academic institutions. So Mm -hmm. we're working with two of the globally leading trade law research center and um, one of the the leading AI research centers, actually all based in Switzerland. And um, then one more thing that we're doing, you know, by way of risk mitigation as a startup, obviously we have to choose quite a narrow focus. And since it's a global business model, we can't narrow down by geography. So what we've chosen to do is actually to narrow down by industries and use cases initially. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So Philip, my next question is, how does BESO ensure accuracy and adherence to the diverse and ever-changing regulatory landscape across diverse countries? Yes, exactly. So that's linked back exactly to, to the previous point about explainability in the use of AI. So um, what we're doing is training our models to essentially continually update this global database of regulations. And we're screening the trade regulations uh, internationally as well as in the national legislations. Mm-hmm. And then investing quite a bit of time every time we broaden the use case a little bit to first make sure we got the right level of explainability to do a lot of manual quality control until eventually we we can allow the model to fly not completely solo but under our supervision and then broaden the use case a little bit. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, My next question is, uh, you know, could you share with me some practical use cases that you are currently working on? And are there any specific sectors that you're keen to collaborate with? Yes, um, well, we've had very positive resonance recently from the chocolate sector. And I think it's a very interesting use case because Mm. if you think of cocoa sourcing, there is quite a lot of sourcing from developing countries. And Mm. um, that's actually where the inaccuracies are biggest in the the current databases on trade Mm. law. Um, right. Also, it's where the societal and environmental risks are biggest in terms of human rights, child labor, deforestation, 
Um, and also there is quite a bit of exposure to regulatory activity. If, if mm. you think, for instance, in the EU, new regulations such as the CSR directive and the deforestation regulation. Mm. So we found it really fascinating, you know, not only because of the reputation of Switzerland as a, as a famous uh, chocolate export Absolutely. hub. But mm. Say, if you, um, if you want to develop a new chocolate bar based out of Switzerland, you want to export it to 20 countries, and mm. each one has their own blend of these regulations that I just mentioned. Mm. And then you have raw materials from a dozen suppliers all over the world. You know, finding out which regulations apply to which suppliers, which declarations need to be made. Mm. That's actually a, a really fascinating use case that we're yeah. currently building with a couple of chocolate manufacturers. Mm. Mm. Well said. So I have time for a few more questions. My next question is, uh, Philip, that on a personal level, what are the most significant learnings you have gained from building and exiting a purpose-driven business? That that's a, an interesting one. I think you know there is a a pretty obvious one, which is that you have to put the purpose at the core of your corporate strategy if you're a, a pur purpose driven organization. I mean, there right. are Harvard Business Review articles on this in the meantime. But I I think what's maybe also interesting is really how to integrate it into the company culture. Mm -hmm. And I think what's important is to be explicit on you know what are the values that are driving you as an organization, and to also define how they are to be interpreted in action. Um, then another thing which I think is really key is if if you are purpose-driven, you shouldn't leave it at, uh, you know, like a, a fuzzy intention, but you should have a very concrete theory of change that kind of right. links what you do in terms of input and output to also the outcome and impact that, that you expect to see. Mm. So you can determine casual chains um, and, and you should also review that quite regularly as the context evolves. Mm. I, I would add one more, which is, you know, people, I, I think it's really key to build an intrinsically motivated team. Mm -hmm. and, and we know about purpose as a motivator, but I think purpose alone is not enough. And that's something that a lot of purpose-driven organizations tend to overlook. Mm. Um, if if you think about the, you know, the pink framework, uh, you should also live enough um uh, room for you know people to build their mastery and and autonomy mm. besides sharing the purpose of the organization mm. Mm. well said and how are you applying these learnings within beso well i think uh, you know beyond what i just mentioned and the direct application such as you know the focus on a win 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 business model mm -hmm. i think one that I would like to stress is really the organizational culture where I think it's important for us to focus on, on flexibility and, and a, a culture of mutual su support mm. because we're bringing purpose-driven individuals from highly specialized and diverse functions such as machine learning and trade law. I mean, mm. those are worlds that hardly overlapped to date. Um, so we, we need to create very close loops, short pathways and, and delegated decisions to allow also the, the purpose to find its way. And mm. another one for us was to, to make courage a core value. And, um, you know, in that, what I mean is, you know, the, the courage to challenge the status quo and the, the courage, courage to be bold and creative and also to address uncomfortable truths mm. at times. Mm. Well said. I have time for two more questions for you. My next question is, what would you recommend to someone who is looking to create a purpose-driven startup? 
I think it, you know, it aligns with, with what I just said. Um, first, create a strategy that allows you to build a win-win-win model. Identify mm. a niche where you see a possibility to make a transformation societally and at the same time use the, the forces of um, commercial operations and address their problems and their mm -hmm. pain points to make sure that that there is a pickup. Mm -hmm. um, then beyond that strategy, you know, focus on culture. I think, especially as a startup, it's so important with the early hires that you add that you make sure that there is a, a clear alignment in terms of the values that you mm -hmm. share. And um, last but not least, at the risk of repeating myself, be very clear about, you know, how you intend to create and measure impact because there will come the time where someone asks you beyond uh, fuzzy intentions, what exactly is it that you do? How do you measure it? And that's something that you should ideally have ready from the get-go. Mm, well said. And my last question to you, uh, Philip, how has your journey in impact investing affected your perspective on money and investment? <laughs> um, well, I think... I see investment as as two things. One is um, a catalyst for change, mm -hmm. where really, you know, allocation of investment drives not only economic activity, but also mm -hmm. what at the end of the day gets gets produced, what finds it its way into the the, the cycle and, and the households. Um, and then second is also investment more at the micro level, maybe as a tool to drive accountability in companies and, you know, demand reporting, um, insist on good corporate governance and putting impact on the agenda. And then when we talk money, I would say, you know, one aspect that fascinates me is, and that goes back to the question of trade-off between impact and, and return is, um, you know, economic viability if you work in the private sector, it is actually a necessary requirement for impact. And it's at times a little bit counterintuitive to some people in the mm -hmm. field, but unless something is profitable, it simply won't last over the long right. term. Right. And I would say, you know, maybe as a final point, let, let's not forget that even in purpose-driven environments with well-intentioned people, um, money does still have an impact on psychology. So, I think it's important not to pretend that this is not the case. Yeah. So instead, what I would rather recommend is, you know, speaking about it early, creating mm. creating clear uh, principles and rules and kind of deal deal with money before you have it. Right. Well said. And on that note, Philip, and uh, your three very, very interesting points for purpose-driven startups, create a strategy for a win-win model. Second, you said, was focus on culture. And third, you said, was be clear about measuring impact. Thank you so much for speaking to me about your own journey. Thank you for talking to me about Obvium, uh, about impact investment. Thank you also for speaking to me about Beso. I mean, I think I learned many, many new things about Beso and all the work that you use doing using artificial intelligence. Thank you for speaking to me and good luck to you. Thank you so much, Ashutosh. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brand Called You videocast and podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, 
Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.